Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. January 14th is the 10th anniversary of the ousting of Tunisian President Zine El Abidine Ben Ali after a wave of anti-government street protests that were echoed across the region, especially in Egypt, Syria, Libya, Yemen and Bahrain. It became known as the Arab Spring, a period of great upheaval and optimism that made 2011 a year to compare with 1968 and 1848, but it did not turn out as hoped. Some dictators remained in place, others were replaced by different authoritarians or left a power vacuum that was filled by chaos. To discuss the events and the legacy of that year, I'm pleased to welcome two experts, Zara Hankier is a Lebanese-British journalist and the editor of Our Women on the Ground, a collection of essays by Arab women about reporting on the Arab world. Khaled Diab is an Egyptian journalist and writer, author of Islam for the Politically Incorrect. Hi, both. Thanks for joining me. Where are you both at the moment? I'm in New York. And uh, hello, everyone. And thanks so much for having us. Yeah, and I'm in uh, the Belgian city of uh, Ghent. And thank you for having me on the show. Yeah, lovely to have you. Um, firstly, can you both tell me what you were um, both doing during the period of the Arab Spring? Sure. I was a reporter with Bloomberg News and I was based in Dubai. I was covering um, economic developments and market developments across the region. I was uh, freelancing as a journalist and writer at the time and I moved to Jerusalem actually at the time uh, when the revolutions kicked off. Sarah, you, you wrote that you sort of felt like a fraud for, for reporting from Dubai. Did you sort of wish you were on the ground yourself? I mean, it depends where the ground is, obviously, because it was in so many different <laughs> countries. I mean, I think in the early days, some media organizations were uh, a little bit more cautious with sending people to the ground. I think actually many Western media organizations did um, suddenly have sort of an increase in the number of foreign reporters that came into the region. But Bloomberg in the early days was slightly more cautious. And I was on the economics desk. So I wasn't a political reporter. And, and Bloomberg doesn't primarily cover politics as a beat. It's more of a finance slash economic media organization. So really, I was in a skyscraper in, in Dubai and, you know, at my desk and monitoring Arab media. So I was watching a lot of the coverage that was happening on the ground. So when I refer to myself as a fraud, yes, I mean, I was covering the uh, the Arab Spring from the economic perspective, and it did have, you know, economic roots. And I think that that coverage was was important but i i sort of had this feeling that i desperately wanted to be in the midst of the events and this was a historic moment and and there i was sort of in this cushy economics reporting job 
um, not doing the sort of reporting that I that probably Khaled did. Maybe Khaled can tell us. No, that. no, no. I was also <laughs> I was also not on the ground like you. Uh, I was itching to be like. Uh, ironically, I was in Egypt just before the revolution kicked off. I left on New Year's uh, Day of 2011, back to Brussels. And yeah, I remember it was very depressing at the time. I wrote some very sort of like downbeat articles about the sorry state of affairs in Egypt. And then, uh, and then the, um, the revolution broke out. But unfortunately, my commitments in Brussels meant I couldn't, I couldn't uh, join them in those heady early days. Well, I mean, I felt like a fraud on various occasions myself because there is there is often that feeling that you know, as as a, as a journalist, you know, that you want to be, you know, sort of where the action is, and but but obviously not everybody is is going to be kind of reporting from the yeah. heart of it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and there's a sense of also, I don't know, um, you could call it maybe kind of survivor guilt, like you know, with yeah. with the, with the massive crackdown and human rights abuses that have been going on in Egypt, and when people you know and people you respect and admire are being rounded up, arrested, their life and livelihoods threatened and stuff like that. It's not just about feeling an imposter. You feel powerless and guilty. You're mm-hmm. comfortable in as an expatriated uh, Arab. And you write about these things and you're invited to talk about them, but you're not the one running the gauntlet and uh, risking yourself. You know, I completely share those, those feelings, Khaled. And I would say also... Prior to the the guilt setting in, there was, I think, in the very early days of the Arab Spring, an element of excitement. I'm not sure if you would agree, but there was this sort of element of hope. I don't know if you were more cynical about it in the beginning, but there was also this feeling that this was this huge historic moment. We're on the cusp of major change, and I want to be there to see it and to feel the excitement. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I, I mean, you couldn't not be moved. I mean, by the sight of mm-hmm. of like hundreds of thousands of people. Uh, together on the streets, facing down, you know, a, a dictatorship and a military junta mm. and stuff, you know, uh, and I, I just followed it compulsively. Of course, you know, my analytical mind made me take a step back and realize, you know, that I was hopeful, but, you know, at the time I wrote that it's, uh, you know, the revolution would take generations to make a real difference. Indeed. Well, well, I wanted to quote something, Khaled, that you wrote recently in Haaret um, and appeared on Chronicle as well. That the day Hosni Mubarak was overthrown was the greatest event of collective euphoria and elation in Egypt in living memory. For that joyous moment, Egyptians discovered that everything they'd been taught about their apathy and obedience was a myth. They possessed the collective will and fortitude to move and remove mountains. Sadly, a decade on, it all appears to have been in vain, at least at first sight. Rarely have so many people sacrificed so much for so little. Now you're saying at the time that you know you thought the, these things don't don't change overnight. But to start with Egypt specifically, what went wrong? There are things that are visible to us now, but there are things that we won't be cognizant of, you know, for years to come because you know not everything is in the public domain. But what certainly is clear is that though people wanted change the regime didn't and uh, they didn't understand democracy didn't understand the cause for freedom they didn't want them and they put it down and repressed it brutally and uh, bloodily you know so they couldn't kill the idea so they went for the second best thing which was to lock up or silence everyone who advocates the idea well there's a line of thought that you sometimes get uh, in in western commentary um which i imagine um 
it's sort of infuriating for someone like you. Well, they say that democracy just can't work in the Middle East and North Africa. And, you know, it's sort of foolish to try. Your argument in that piece, of course, is that actually the people would rather like democracy and, uh, and, and they, are, they are ready to sort of, they're ready for that. It's just that you've got the leaders and in some places the army um, in the way. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I don't. I don't think Arabs uh, and more widely, say Muslims, are any less ready than than other peoples. I mean, we can see it with the rise and march of authoritarianism and fascism in in Europe and America. It's always a constant struggle to keep f- freedom and democracy I- in place. You know, yeah. In the Arab world, I think it's not so much the people who don't get democracy; it's the leaders who don't get democracy. Where the atmosphere is more conducive, democracy does take root, like in Tunisia. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you, Zara, I remember a great deal of optimism at the very beginning because the situation in Tunisia was resolved so quickly. Uh, within a within a few weeks, there was a, there was a change of government. And it's been, of, of, of all those countries, I suppose, you know, obviously nowhere's perfect, but it's, I suppose, fared the best. Why was Tunisia different? Why did, the, why did other countries... Uh, have such a a difficult time relatively? I mean, I think it's difficult to say because there are so many different dynamics. We're talking about, you know, a region of 22 countries. Each country has its own political dynamics. I think the through line was economic discontent. And, you know, depending on how things played out in various countries, there appeared to be hope politically speaking, and and there was hope that that would translate also into sort of broader economic change. I think I really want to touch on this point on the idea of Tunisia being a success story. I think if you look now at Tunisia, there's a high level or deep disillusionment in Tunisia, despite the fact that you don't see, for example, it depends on really how you define success. I mean, you have... um, Relative, yes. (laughs) Relatively. I mean, you have, you know, conflicts in in sort of Yemen, Syria, and and Libya. You had, you know, deep upheaval in in places like Iraq. And, um, you know, even in, you know, we forget about Bahrain. There was, was at at some point, an attempt at an uprising in Bahrain, and and that was completely crushed. But I think if you look at, um, you know, there, there were dramatic improvements in civil rights in Tunisia and people feel that they have more freedom to criticize the government at the same time you know there were some troubling developments the highest numbers of arabs that were joining isis were coming from tunisia so that was another sort of complicating and interesting factor and you also have a high level of of, of people leaving tunisia as well so there's sort of an exodus going on so you know there are still um, elements of discontent and disillusionment and i think there are still economic grievances as well that are driving people in a way that uh, does not necessarily mean that there, there's been substantial change or improvement. Do you think democratic reform is sort of impossible or at least, uh, you know, incomplete unless you address the poverty and economic justice, that you can't just sort of try and change the system if a lot of that discontent is still there? It's Again, it's hard to, to generalise, but if you look at, um, you know, economic growth being stagnant and you look at high unemployment and then now you look at the COVID-19 pandemic and how that's certainly worsened the situation across the region. You know, at least in Tunisia, to speak of Tunisia specifically, half of Tunisians currently feel that they're worse off than they were prior to the Arab Spring. So you cannot assume that a top-down change will trickle, you know, down to the to the sort of day-to-day life of, of Arabs generally. And I think I'm trying to focus on specific countries here, but if you look at Lebanon, for example, 
you have a situation in which there have been sort of cosmetic changes at the at the level of the sectarian government um, and who's in in power there, but that's not enough. That's not enough to change what's happening in terms of the economic grievances and sheer humiliation that Lebanese live in because the sectarian political structure is so much deeper than these cosmetic changes. And I think that that culture cannot change without sort of deeper structural reforms that we're not seeing. Yeah, the, the situation in Tunisia is, uh, is very challenging to untangle and to uh, identify I agree with Zahra that economic grievances and economic issues there uh, are are problematic and threaten the long-term sustainability of of the Tunisian transition. However, I disagree with you uh, in the sense that I think Tunisia politically has been a a very powerful success story. It's engineered or managed a a peaceful, uh, largely unviolent transition from one of the most authoritarian states in in the region to its most democratic, you know. Um, and it did that at a time of massive economic challenge, you know. I mean, I mean, th- there are Tunisians who have are beginning to believe these sort of like rumors and myths and quite a lot of them that in the days of Ben Ali, the economy was better, but th- there wouldn't have been an uprising if the economy was so healthy back then. And also, like, we're missing here the global dimension Tunisia's economy, you know, its entire GDP is about half the revenues of Google. In a global setup like that, even if Tunisia were to have the best governance in the world, it still would have great difficulty getting moving up the economic ladder. You know, this global system is set up against a country, a small country like Tunisia, because it's got the big lions and giants of um, the OECD and the West and so on, the tr- sort of traditional economic powers. And then it's got the giants, the emerging giants of China and India and Brazil and so on with huge populations and economies of scale. So, you know, it's going to be very difficult for a country with a GDP of $40 billion to compete on a stage like this. That's why we need, not in addition to local solutions, we need some kind of global solution to the issues of inequality because, you know, there's this idea that was being pushed for decades that democracy uh, is a way to bring about economic reforms that will better life for people. But that's a very simplistic idea. You, could have, you can have democracy without having economic uh, well-being. It's entirely possible, and Tunisia proves this. Yeah, no, I just want to say I, I fully agree with you, Khaled. I don't want to take away from the tremendous achievement of the Tunisian people. Um, I just wanted to point to the fact that there there still are grievances that remain and, and that those were the grievances that prompted the, the revolution in the first Absolutely, place. and they can derail uh, all progress as well if absolutely. they're not addressed. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I agree. Yeah. Khaled, I wanted to ask you about the response of the international community. And again, like Zara said, it, it's very hard to talk about this as just one big you know, movement or trend because each country is different. But I want to say, say, Libya, where military intervention was approved by the UN, direct response to Gaddafi threatening to massacre protesters, but certainly hasn't resulted in a healthy democracy. Now, I don't know if your, if your thoughts have sort of changed on this over time, but do you think the intervention was, what do you make of the intervention in principle and in practice? 
Yeah, with Libya, it's it's a dilemma. Gaddafi had promised hell, to rain hell down on his people. So there was a humanitarian imperative to get involved. But I'm personally a supporter of things to be done under international law properly. And also for there to be a long-term game plan, sending in uh, you know, uh, jet fighters and, and, and bombs and stuff is not the way to resolve uh, a situation like that. You've got to have a long-term game plan for how to stabilize the country and how to transition it. That wasn't the case in Libya. Uh, I think in Libya, what happened was more that, you know, there were certain vital interests at play and Europe, led by France, wanted to sort of ensure that the oil wells were protected and so on. Okay, it's not entirely that cynical, but but that played a major factor in the decision to intervene. And like with Iraq before it and Afghanistan and so on, there's plenty, billions available, you know, when it's about dropping bombs, but there's very little available when it's about stabilizing, shoring up a society and, you know, instilling uh, good governance and uh, improving the welfare and well-being of citizens. I mean, I suppose the most horrific uh, events coming out of 2011 was the um, what turned into a civil war in Syria and lasting for, for years um, is that somewhere that you could see, like you said, you know, you can't just solve everything with, uh, with with bombs. Was that something that you you could see that there was something the international community could have done that would have avoided what it turned into? Absolutely. I mean, I think I think the Syria crisis and Syrian civil war has exposed the reality of how pathetic international governance has become. The architecture for the international institutions that was put in place at the close of World War II is not fit for purpose. You know, the United States, the United Nations Security Council, with its vetoes, effectively means that any of the, you know, the, any of the five permanent members on that council can scupper any kind of international response to a crisis in which they have vested interests. This has been done mostly over the decades by the United States. But in the case of Syria, Russia and China scuppered all international efforts to defuse the, the, the conflict and now, until it was too late. And they're still, Russia especially is still doing that. Sorry, so we talked, I mean, obviously Syria is the most extreme example, Libya too. Many of these countries are currently in a bad way. A recent poll by Guardian and YouGov found that most people across the Middle East feel they're living in more unequal societies now with worse living standards, as you mentioned. You said on the BBC that a sense of hopelessness now pervades the region. Did the, uh, I suppose, overall failure of the, the Arab Spring diminish the belief that positive change is possible? Are, are people, as a sense, sort of still licking their wounds because perhaps their hopes were so high at the beginning? I think that's that's maybe a slightly uh, reductive way of putting it, uh, licking their wounds. I think that uh, it's absolutely justified that people feel hopeless and crushed. I think if you look at, uh, you know, the the current situation in multiple countries across the region, there are plenty of reasons why they would feel that way. And I think looking specifically at Syria, looking at Egypt, and Khaled already spoke about about this, that dissent is is entirely crushed. You know, there's so many people behind bars, people who have been trying to do really um, incredible work. And I think also that, that there are reasons for 
hope. There are pockets of hope, but those pockets feel quite small when you look at these developments. I mean, I come back to Lebanon a lot because I'm obviously Lebanese, but looking at the, at the Beirut blast, you know, there's so much impunity across the region. There are sort of independent, uh, let's say, journalists who are doing excellent work, or there are activists who are doing excellent work. More often than not, they are suppressed and repressed and attacked and assaulted by the various states across the region. Again, difficult to generalize, but that is my feeling. I would say that I, 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 I think if you know they get the support that they need, um, and the international community can can play a role there that uh, there is more reason for hope. But currently, it feels dire to me. I don't know if Khalid feels any differently. Do you have any any hope? I, I think I would say I have hope in independent media across the region, even though they're they're frequently a target of, of specific regimes. Um, and I think that the, the people, the desire for change is very much still there. So you still have people who, I mean, I think COVID has kind of changed the protest situation in places like Lebanon and Iraq, but I still think that there was there were moments where there, it really felt like that there could be momentum. So I do have faith in the people themselves. It's just the governments and regimes are so crushing. What do you think, Khalid? Yeah, I, I share uh, I share Zahra's like analysis that there are glimmers of hope, and you know uh, w- one area of, of strongest hope is that political reform has been crushed. Social revolution is going ahead at uh, breakneck speed in many Arab societies. You know, uh, in Lebanon, for example, all the stuff about civil uh, marriage and trying to move beyond sectarianism at the grassroots level and trying to build a truly sort of um, civil secular state, you know, that could only be applauded because one of the weaknesses in Lebanese politics has been the, the, its division into sects since uh, the French mandate. And gay rights have advanced a lot in Lebanon. In Egypt, you know, there's... Uh, all kinds of minorities have come out of the shadows to try and assert their rights, including atheists, Christians. To a lesser extent, they've been trying, you know, some gay activists. Uh, uh, women women have played a phenomenal role over the past decade and the decade before that. Like in Egypt, we had a strong feminist awakening ever since the turn of the millennium uh, with a much greater assertiveness of, uh, you know, women trying to rest you know, more power from the patriarchy. And women were out in force on tah- in Tahrir and uh, across the country. And since then, you know, they've been campaigning and working on, on not just women's rights, but rights, you know, general human rights and, and personal rights and so on. There are these elements of hope. But I, I also, I share the despair at the situation, but I look at it somewhat differently. I don't, th- I wouldn't say the Arab revolutions have failed I would say Arab states have failed or are failing. And the revolutions were a last-ditch, desperate effort to save these Arab states from their implosion. So, I mean, in Egypt, for example, the people were out in the streets. Hope came afterwards, but they were out on the streets for reasons of despair. They despaired at having a dictator who had been in power for three decades. They despaired at having a military controlling their lives for the last, since the 50s. They, uh, they despaired at the economic situation. And that drove them out into the street. Then it changed into hope when they saw how many people were out on the streets and how they managed 
to topple a, a dictator. So when people say the Arab Spring failed, that's a way to try, uh, you know, it takes a sort of thunder out of the idea that people can change their reality. Whereas in truth, it's Arab regimes and states that have failed. And I would also argue, I agree, and I would also argue it's, you know, not necessarily like the Arab Spring is done, right? I think it's an ongoing struggle and an ongoing fight, and it will continue so long as you have people like in, you know, Lebanon and Iraq and elsewhere protesting, so long as you have independent media, so long as you have activists working for the causes and the issues that you mentioned, Khalid, I think that it continues. The, the spirit of it is still there. Well, I was going to ask because, I mean, in the same way, I suppose that, you know, 1968 is such a famous year of protest, but of course there were, you know, student protests uh, in years before and after that maybe get less attention because you don't have that great, great sort of historical turning point narrative. So since 2011, as you say, it's sort of an ongoing process. Have there been sort of um, equivalent protest movements, reform movements, um, in the region that you consider part of that moment, even if they've happened uh, in subsequent years? I mean, um, 100%, I would say the October revolu- revolution in Lebanon, although it the outcome of it was <laughs> was quite tragic in the sense that, you know, it did lead to some high-level resignations. But as I said, the reforms at the top level in terms of the sectarian um like people who, who who have been in power for decades and who've gotten away with corruption and gotten away with leading the country or dragging the country into the abyss that it's in today, they're still actually in power. I think that uh, the, the, the Beirut uh, blast, it brought all of that to the surface in a way that is irreversible, that was truly a turning point for Lebanese because the sheer ineptness of the Lebanese government and the sheer neglect of the Lebanese government when it came to protecting the people and serving the people was was laid bare. And the economic crisis that the country is in right now and the fact, for example, that the Lebanese political figures will not budge when it comes to making reforms that would allow for an international bailout that would literally help you know people who are living in sheer poverty and, and, and refugees who are living in Lebanon, the fact that they're not budging also just shows that no matter what the people do on the ground... If you do not have these reforms at that level, then we're not likely to see change anytime soon. But I think because we're at that point where the blast was so devastating and so harrowing that people won't stay quiet. So they, they might be regrouping right now because, you, you know, the situation is so is so difficult on a day-to-day basis. There's a lockdown there. The COVID situation, as I said, has stalled some of the, the progress when it came to mobilization and protest. I think they will regroup and come back. I don't think that they're, they're going to quiet down and sort of disappear. Lebanon has been the victim of a lot of foreign aggression, but this kind of destruction, which was similar to the kind of thing you would get from a foreign bombing campaign, happened due to solely due to negligence. Uh, uh, Sudan is a good example as well, uh, mm-hmm. the protest movement there, which is very reminiscent of the Egyptian one in 2011 against Omar al-Bashir, which led to his uh, downfall. You know, that, that, that that's also very promising. Also, that there's the things that aren't noticed. Once the cameras stop rolling, it doesn't mean events have stopped. Mm-hmm. In, in Tunisia, for example, it still has hundreds of strikes and protests and, and so on every year. In Egypt, you know, in the years following 2011, there were thousands of strikes across the country registered every year. 
But of course, they're not as sexy as having hundreds of thousands of people in Cairo or Tahrir or whatever. You know, they're more like factory strikes, walkouts, some cases where they actually took like uh, seized, uh, you know, uh, the, 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 the installation itself and wouldn't be removed and things like that. I, I really want to touch on this. I'm sorry. I know you must have a lot of questions to get through, but I think that's such a great point from Khalid, and it really speaks to what what I've been trying to advocate in my book and through my work by promoting and amplifying the voices of local Arab journalists, which is that the narrative has on the region in the international media community has been incomplete um, since the you know the sort of explosion and in interest during the Arab Spring and then the aftermath of the Arab Spring, the media has been, the global media has been quite selective in what it is focusing on. And obviously this is quite normal, I think. You know, the media it sort of has its cycles. It has its moment of interest in particular regions. But I think that that takes away from the layered and nuanced developments in the region that uh, Khalid has just touched on. And that is a direct result of sort of us focusing on the international media narrative rather than really looking at local developments through the eyes of local reporters who are doing that work on the ground. And, and I wanted to, to end by talking about something you alluded to earlier, obviously, uh, that COVID-19 seems to highlight systemic strengths and weaknesses in every country it hits. You know, it's, it's shown us the limits of Johnson, Trump, Bolsonaro, you know, and the strengths of, of, of other leaders. How has it played out in the, I mean, the, the, the region is not one of the, the worst hit, but has it had the same effect of just showing the kind of the weaknesses of certain leaders or forms of government in dealing with crisis? I mean, Lebanon currently has the highest rate of infections ac across the region. I think a few days ago it had the highest incidence per capita in, in the world in terms of the infection rate. It is a direct result of the ineptness of the government over the holiday period. They completely opened up the country. Obviously, the Beirut blast also caused um, massive upheaval when it came to you know, the homelessness across the city uh, of Beirut. There were hundreds of thousands of people who were homeless, uh, and the government really did not step up. It was civil society that was stepping up and people were coming together to help others. But but what ended up happening is that the COVID situation worsened. The public health situation there is dire. There's barely any ICU capacity and the government has mismanaged the entire situation. So for me, this is a continuation. The COVID situation is a continuation of the failure of the Lebanese government to serve its citizens. So absolutely, for me, that is the top example. And if you look at the numbers, Lebanon is, as I said, faring the worst across the region at this current moment. Obviously, we don't know what testing rates are in other countries and people question you know, how, how accurate official numbers are. But from what we're seeing, um, Lebanon is, is currently uh, faring the worst. Yeah, whether Lebanon's actually the worst hit or not, it's difficult to say because there's little transparency in, most, in many of the Arab countries. Yeah. And this is one weakness of the system that COVID has highlighted, the lack of transparency, the lack of accountability, the lack of even the need to, to openly distort and lie about reality rather than deal with it in order to sort of like try and present a, a, a better picture. Egypt was a classic example of this. You know, they tried to keep it under wraps. They tried to, you know, threaten, uh, you know, people who were covering it. There have also been surprises. Like, for example, when COVID first hit, I thought, I hope it doesn't really get into Egypt because it spread like wildfire in a city like Cairo. 
you know, densely populated poverty, people living on top of each other, you know, loss of interaction between generations. But, you know, this doesn't appear to have been the case. And people stuck, to, even though Egyptians are famously unruly, they stuck to the rules relatively well considering, you know. Tunisia is also a bit surprising in the sense that they seem to early on reacted pretty robustly and it may have paid off in reducing the infection rates and so on. They were checking all travelers coming in. They like uh, imposed curfews and I don't know what. And for a, a democratic government in Tunisia that's known for its slow responsiveness and so on, it's quite impressive. I will say that I will spare the Lebanese government no criticism whatsoever. <laughs> they they left 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, you know, to explode uh, at any moment. So uh, I, I do think that, you know, it might not be accurate to say that it is the, wor- the country that's faring the worst, but I would say that the numbers are alarmingly and disturbingly high, and that is a direct result of the, the Lebanese government's failure to contain the crisis as it was unraveling before their very eyes. And I do also want to point to the fact that, you know, there's massive refugee community uh, in Lebanon and that so many, so much of the population, the majority of the, the population is living in poverty. And I think one of the earliest, strongest pieces to come out on COVID in the region was, I, I'm not sure if it was Newsweek, but it was something along the lines of how do you socially distance in a refugee camp or how do refugees socially distance? which I think is, you know, looking at a place like Lebanon or a place, a place that's so densely populated is an important point to raise. Well, before we go, because you mentioned the importance of journalism on the ground and the way that I suppose the global media's attention moved on and it's overlooking things, could you both just sort of quickly recommend an, an outlet for people who are curious to, to sort of follow what's going on in the region? You are allowed to plug your own outlets, by the way, if you wish <laughs> I would say Madame Assad in Egypt. I'm sure you're familiar <laughs> with it, Khalid. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, and the public source in, in Lebanon. So those are two really good ones. Yeah, Madame Assad is, uh, is excellent. They've been working against the odds. They had their offices raided and uh, their journalists intimidated and, uh, and so on. But they still carry on and they do one amazing exposés. They're balanced and neutral. Yep. The p- pinnacle of professionalism Mada is M-A-D-A, yeah. and Masr, which means Egypt, is M-A-S-R. And actually, the the editor is one of the contributors, Lina Atala is one of the contributors in my book, Our Women on the Ground. She has a beautiful chapter, mm. and she was also one of voted one of Time's People of the Year last year, which was lovely yeah, she, to see. She's a courage, co- courageous woman. And yeah. she was, yeah, she was detained by the Egyptian authorities briefly as well, so... Yeah, and uh, in Tunisia, pretty much everything. I was living in Tunisia for a couple of years, and they have some. They've got a very vibrant media. They even commercial radio there has a lot of like uh, political talk shows and discussions, which surprised me. Like uh, for commercial radio, uh, you know, um, you know that they, they scrutinize everything. Uh, so, so, so the media has been one of the success stories in Tunisia post revolution. Thanks so much for joining me and uh, talking about this, Sarah Hankier. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And Khaled Diab. Thank you for having me. And it was a a very interesting debate. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. And produced by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. 
theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Thank you.